Chapter 4, Don't Call It the End. As we tell these stories of the COVID-19 pandemic in St. Louis, more than three years have passed since that first loss the woman Hannah Adams saw at the urgent care. Since then, the losses have only grown to numbers most of us find it difficult, if not impossible, to truly understand. And yet, the pandemic is still with us. From the language we use, to the hygiene habits we practice, to the entire generation of kids whose upbringing and education has been defined by COVID. For our final episode, we're reflecting on that trajectory, how our lives have changed from the days when those first cases were only rumors on the radio, and the losses that have remained with us in the ongoing aftermath. We're sharing our conversation with Dr. Hilary Babcock, who is leading WashU's response to COVID-19, about her fight with COVID at the workplace and at home. In February 2020, Dr. Hilary Babcock was sitting in a conference room in Japan. She was listening to a colleague give a talk about infectious disease. This wasn't anything special in itself. She'd been working as an epidemiologist for decades now and went to these kinds of conferences all the time. But as she looked out the window, she could see a luxury liner docked in the harbor. The Diamond Princess cruise ship was moored right there where we were staying. Um, I could see it from my hotel. The ship was at the epicenter of a new type of viral pneumonia. The cruise ship off the coast of Japan that's currently on a quarantine period because so many people are sick. That's 39 more people aboard that quarantine cruise 67 ship. 67 new people have tested positive. So the number of cases, unfortunately, just keeps going up. There are now 136. We have 175 people on this one cruise ship that are infected. The ship outbreak, the largest anywhere outside China. So many health authorities around the world calling it essentially a petri dish for the coronavirus. Um, so the infectious disease doctors that I was meeting with there, like we were all talking about, like they were having patients coming off of the cruise ship and into their hospitals. Um, and they were all figuring out like how to manage those patients and how to take care of them. At this point, sitting in the room in Japan, everything felt safe and contained. Sure, there were a few people who were sick on a cruise ship, but out in the community, everything was normal. People were eating in restaurants and going to parties. Wearing medical face masks in big urban centers is already pretty common in Japan. So if people were wearing masks, it wasn't any more or less than you'd expect during a regular flu season. Life felt normal. I mean, it seems sort of naive now that we didn't appreciate how big and how long and how much would happen, but I don't think there was a real way to know what would happen. In retrospect, it's sort of surreal <laughs> looking, looking back on it, because it was like you could... You could tell what was coming, but really we didn't have any idea how bad it was going to be, how widespread it would be, how easily it would spread, like we, how long it would go on, like whether, what would happen. We really didn't. We really didn't know any of that yet. COVID-19 hadn't been declared a pandemic yet. It had made it to the U.S. in the beginning of January, but case numbers were still low and people had more questions than fears at this point. Nobody knew how it worked. How transmissible was it? Was it spread more through touch or aerosols? What kind of masks were best to wear? Do we even need masks? How bad was this all going to get? But 
but Hillary's entire job is to plan for those kinds of unknowns. She's the director of infection prevention and occupational infection prevention for BJC Healthcare in St. Louis, which is a really long title that basically means she's a really good infectious disease specialist. I went to med school actually thinking that I would do OBGYN. Big feminist, gonna be a woman's doctor, like a woman taking care of women is gonna be great. And then at my med school at Southwestern in Dallas, the med students deliver loads of babies and that was horrible and I hated it and it was gross. And I did not wanna do that anymore. <laughs> so she switched to internal medicine. This was in the early 90s, right around the time that HIV research was just starting to ramp up. And during her time as an intern, she ended up working with a lot of HIV patients. So Hillary got a chance to work with infectious diseases pretty early on in her career. And she was hooked. Everything that we do is just really fascinating. We take care of patients on every floor and service in the hospital. We work with, you know, every organ system. So it's not like just the heart all day, every day. Um, we see infected hearts, but infected brains and infected bones and infected joints and infected skin and infected whole bodies. Working with infectious diseases is kind of like being a detective. We talk to our patients and we have all kinds of crazy conversations with them. I need to know if you have a chicken coop in your backyard. I need to know if you have well water out behind your house. I need to know when you last traveled and where. I need to know if you've gotten your vaccines and when. So we just have really exciting conversations. So I really loved infectious diseases. And that love is what led her to Japan that day. Sitting in a conference room in Yokohama staring out at a cruise ship that was the epicenter of this mysterious new disease. But before that, back in December 2019, Hillary gets an email from a fellow infectious disease specialist. He sort of monitors the global health and announcements about new diseases and, and things like that. And he'll send emails to, to a bunch of us across the organization periodically and be like, I don't think there's anything to worry about here, but there's been more avian flu in you know, this around this market in China, and we're just, you know, keeping an eye on it. So he sent an email in December um, when he said, monitoring this, um, reports of a possibly viral pneumonia happening in China, something to keep an eye on. Nowadays, Hillary and her colleagues think back to that email a lot because that was the first clue that something major was about to happen. As time went on, it became clear that this mysterious pneumonia wasn't going away. In fact, it was spreading. And it had the potential of getting really bad. So Hillary and her team set up an incident command center and got to work. They start to build this safety net for the hospital, a net of protocol and memos meant to protect as many people as they can. And this can be tricky. How do you decide who's priority for PPE? What happens if there isn't enough to go around? Then, as you've all heard, there are lots of shortages. Um, nobody really, you know, has a cache of a three-month supply of um, daily use at a much higher level than usual of all the equipment that we usually use. The number of masks and gloves the hospital needs skyrockets. And Hillary and her team have to scramble to get the employees that equipment that they need. And this is harder than you might think. Because if you say a number, you may say, oh, we have 
a million isolation masks. And everyone's like, well, that sounds great. We have a million isolation masks. And then they're like, right, our burn rate, our, our usage rate for isolation masks is 50,000 a day or is 100,000 a day. So like a million masks may be a two week supply of masks. Like, well, that's nothing. It becomes a lot about cash and risk, a negotiation between safety and comfort. And this continued to be a really big issue for them during the early days of the pandemic. Hillary had to be the one to take all of those concerns into consideration and decide what to do. And that can be hard. But those tough decisions were essential in making sure that the hospital didn't run out of PPE, which was a real possibility. You know, it's been tight and we've run short and we're doing a lot of things differently than we normally would. But with all those constraints, I don't think that we're going to have a situation where literally somebody has to intubate a patient with COVID without the right protection. Um, and so, I, you know, that's I'm hopeful that that is true. Life continues on in a blur. Ever-evolving protocols, changing PPE requirements and numbers, and staying up to date on the newest CDC guidelines. They discuss the proper way to reuse a respirator and whether the morgue has enough body bags. Things they never had to worry about before. Hillary helps thousands of people to navigate this overwhelming new normal in the hospital system. And just as things were starting to hit their stride, Hillary got COVID. I'm not like a high risk person. I'm not really working in the hospital. I'm not taking care of COVID patients. I'm, you know, I said to a lot of people, I'm like, I think I got it by incantation. I have just said the word COVID <laughs> so much that I finally got COVID. She was headed home from setting up a call center at the hospital. And then when I left from that and came home that evening, all of a sudden, like my chest felt weird. And I felt a little bit tight and a little bit like pressure-y and a little like funny and like I couldn't, I felt a little short of breath. Just like not terrible, but just a little. But I actually said to my husband, I think I have COVID. Like this, this is not, I had never felt anything like that before. It's not normal. Like it, I don't think this is right. At first she tried to ignore it. She was working from home at this point, And so she kind of just continued on with her life waiting for her symptoms to go away. And then by Friday, I still felt, you know, chest tight and a sore, sore to breath and sort of sore. And also like going up one flight of stairs in my house, totally winded. So Friday, I called Occupational Health and they arranged for me to get tested. I got tested and then got my results Saturday morning that I was positive. It felt a little bit like I felt like I shouldn't I feel like I shouldn't have it, like I should have been able to avoid it. But I got it before we knew about asymptomatic spread and before anyone was wearing masks. So I still have what I would call inappropriate tachycardia. My heart will just be racing or my resting heart rate will suddenly just like be 100 or 110, which is not supposed to be. But overall, like I don't get short of breath going upstairs anymore. Um, I can walk a lot longer and farther and go up hills more than I could um, without getting short of breath. So I don't tend to get short of breath anymore, but I just still have this heart thing. And it's irritating and I don't like it and I wish it would go away. And a few months later, Hillary's mom also got sick. 
So I had already had COVID, so I was considered um, sort of the safest member of the family. And so, which was sort of a blessing. I could sit with my mom, you know, which was good because then my dad didn't um, feel like he had to be there, which would have put him at big risk if he had, had done that. Her natural immunity let her be there when her mom died. She was grateful. Grateful that her mom didn't have to be alone. She squeezed her mom's hand and said goodbye. Months passed in their weird COVID way. Fluid, too slow and too fast all at once. But Hillary and the others push on. They watch beds fill, empty, and fill up again. But then, some hope. We got our first shipment of vaccine, um, I think December 15th. We started vaccinating employees on December 17th. Hillary's role shifted from focusing on preventing the spread of COVID to coordinating the vaccine rollout. And that came with its own set of hurdles. It's been a was that at the beginning, it was very unpredictable how much vaccine we would get. So we wouldn't schedule people to give them vaccine until we had the vaccine in hand because we didn't want to schedule you and then be like, oh, sorry. Nope, no vaccine for you, actually. Um, So we would wait till we had it all in hand and then we would schedule. And the state was really picky about how this worked. You had one week to use every single dose that they gave you. So Hillary and her team did what they do best. They strategized. They looked into how annual flu shot clinics were run, how far apart the patients should be spaced, how long does it take to actually administer a shot. So that we can predict, like, by the end of next Tuesday, because we get doses shipments um, arrive on Tuesday. So by the end of Tuesday, we will be at zero. Things get even more tricky when you consider that COVID shots come in twos. The team learned that once you decide how many people you can vaccinate in a day, you have to be able to vaccinate twice that amount of people three weeks later. Because then you have people coming back for second doses and you're still giving first doses. So if you think you can do a thousand a day, you actually have to start at 500 a day so that when you have the second doses, you can really accommodate them. It's a massive amount of logistical work, but finally it's planning for something good. And I volunteered at some of our public vaccine clinics, and everyone who's coming through is so happy, like so grateful that they have vaccine available, so happy to be there. People are smiling, people are crying, people are laughing, like people are talking about like seeing their grandchildren, people are talking about, you know, what they're what they plan to do next month once they're all protected. It is really nice to see people sort of planning for that future that now seems much more attainable than it did six months ago. At the point of this interview, it had been just over a year since Hillary sat in that conference room in Yokohama, staring out at the Diamond Princess. But in that time span, it seemed like she moved mountains. She ran an incident command center, dealt with fluctuating numbers of PPE, and set up centers that vaccinated thousands of people. And that's a crazy amount to accomplish in just 365 days. She was proud of all this work that she'd done, but she knew that this was just the beginning of the end of the pandemic. 
I keep saying in, in media interviews, like the good thing is we can see the light at the end of the tunnel now, but we're still in the tunnel. Um, and so we do need to, to keep being careful and keep following these precautions. Um, my name is Dr. Hillary Babcock and it is March 11th, um, 2021, 365 days after the WHO declared a global pandemic. One year into the pandemic and things were starting to really look up. We'd all done our part, staying home, wearing masks, washing our hands, and finally we had the vaccine. We did it. And for a while, it seemed like that was true. But that was before Omicron. We're starting the four o'clock with breaking news on the Omicron variant. 2,000 people are in the hospital in Missouri right now. Some hospitals are exceeding the number of COVID patients that they have had at any other peak. Frankly, we're really getting crushed uh, by this virus right now. There really are no hospitals that are left untouched. There's no place for us to go for respite. Uh, we don't have a place that we can send patients if we run out of room. Uh, the inn is full. There's no safe harbor. The Omicron wave pushed hospitals in St. Louis to their absolute brink. It was really, in some ways, the worst surge for our hospital. Between December 2021 and February 2022, they had more people in the hospital because of COVID than they'd ever had before. And on top of that, hundreds of their employees were also out sick. We had a, a time period when we had almost 200 employees a day testing positive for COVID. So the staffing challenges for the hospital and for the healthcare system were, were huge. There were even a couple of weeks when staffing numbers were so low that the hospital called in their presidents and CEOs to do things like clean rooms and work as entry screeners. And while hospitals were trying to figure out how to deal with this new crisis, it felt like the rest of the world had just stopped caring. You know, there were people like we were watching Omicron spread in other places. We were preparing for Omicron to get here. We were watching our case numbers start to go up. And we were getting invitations to holiday parties and seeing people on social media post these Christmas gatherings and New Year's parties and all kinds of things, you know, without masks and still eating out in restaurants. And like, it was as if nobody, everyone was just like, well, whatever happens going to happen. And the healthcare system was just failing. And they just were like, whatever. And that was really hard, too. And this was happening everywhere because there was something different about the Omicron wave. People were tired, tired of wearing masks and being told what they could and couldn't do. They were tired of being scared. I'm recording this in April 2022, which means that we have been living with COVID-19 for over two years. That's two years of singing happy birthday twice while we wash our hands, two years of seeing hand sanitizer in the grocery stores, and two years of living in these unprecedented times. So that brings us to the question that everyone seems to be asking nowadays. How can you tell when a pandemic is over? No, my least favorite question. Not, we, it's very hard to say there's like a point in time because 
the difference between pandemic and endemic is really like endemic is really something where it's predictable. It doesn't mean that it's low burden. It doesn't mean that it's not killing lots of people. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything to prevent it. So I like to use the example of malaria. Malaria is endemic in a lot of African nations. And that doesn't mean people don't use bed nets to try to keep mosquitoes away. And it doesn't mean that we don't keep trying to develop a vaccine for it. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't kill lots of people, children and adults every single year, but it's endemic. It's predictable. We know what's gonna happen with malaria until there's some game-changing treatment or game-changing intervention. And with COVID, we're not there yet. We don't know when the next wave is gonna hit or where the newest variant might come from. Viruses don't move in straight lines, no matter how much we wish that they did. I don't know, I don't know why we want that. Um, but I don't think there's, there's not gonna be a day that we say, okay, done, mission accomplished, um, COVID vanquished. It's just gonna become more and more part of our normal routine. And that's just so unsatisfying to hear that after two years of putting our lives on hold, there's no triumphant end in sight. But life has to keep moving forward. And even though COVID isn't done with us yet, some things are slowly moving back to normal. Those massive vaccine clinics that Hillary helped to set up in 2021 are shutting down. And so is the Incident Command Center. It'll be the longest ever Incident Command Center that we've ever had. Most Incident Command Centers are short, a week or two maybe a month responding to an, an emergency. This will be the longest we've ever had. Getting to this point in the pandemic is a victory. But Hillary is the first to admit that these victories came at a cost. According to the CDC, at the time of this recording, over 75 million people in the United States contracted COVID-19. And of those, over 900,000 died. And because case tracking isn't perfect, that number might actually be much higher. No matter how happy we might be that restrictions are easing and case numbers are going down, that doesn't change the fact that COVID took people's family members away from them. But I do also feel, so I'll probably cry when I say this as well, but I do also feel like those of us who lost family members, I just feel like it's also sort of disrespectful to the people who died to be like, no, it's all over now. It's like it never happened. Like now we can all celebrate that it's gone. And those of us who lost family, like they're still gone. And it's not, that doesn't change just because this surge went away. So I feel a little bit like, um, like a family member and like who lost someone in the war and then everyone's like having big praise and celebrating that the war is over but like they still don't have their family member and I feel that way about my mom like everyone's just kind of like woohoo it's all over now and I'm like okay but still don't have a mom and that's just kind of that makes it harder too I felt that way also the first time like when the vaccines came out and everyone kept posting these pictures about, like, we're so happy to go see our grand grandparents now. We're so happy to go see our grandchildren now. And I was like, well, that's nice, but doesn't really apply for me. There are so many people in the same boat as Hillary. 
And for people who lost someone they love because of COVID, it's hard to watch the world go back to normal because for them, life will never be normal again. The story of COVID-19 is not over yet. In the coming years, there will probably be more variants, more mandates, and more boosters. And no matter how much we might want a clean black and white ending, that's just not gonna happen. COVID has written itself into our bones and we're going to have to learn to live with its effects for a very long time. You've been listening to Hilary Babcock on how she's been battling COVID at work and at home. The Responders, an oral history of COVID-19, is brought to you with support from the Mellon Foundation and Washington University in St. Louis. This project is produced in memory of our classmate and friend, Momo Oyama.